Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Happy 2022. I will acknowledge that I'm not a big New Year's person. I find it to be kind of a weird holiday, a weird time. But I am open to celebrating new beginnings. And more than that, to acknowledging ongoing ventures. And in that spirit, we're going to be doing a slightly different kind of show today. As the Voices of Esalen podcast enters its seventh year. Yeah, pretty awesome. And in kind of a celebration... I decided to interview myself today, doing a deep dive into the creative process that surrounds making this show, all in an effort to give you a little glimpse under the hood at Voices of Esalen. But before we do that, let me mention quickly something at Esalen that I'm excited about. It's our new Digital Extended Education Program, or DEEP, which is designed to offer an Esalen workshop that you can experience from the comfort of your own home. The first six-week online workshop was We're All Gonna Die, led by the Reverend Bodhi B, and it started a few days ago on January 10th, 2022. The second online course is Moon Lodge. It focuses on celebrating the body of woman and the sacred feminine within. This is with Lucia Haran and Dr. Julia Vaughn, and it begins January 17th. There are still a few days to sign up at esalen.org. Now here's my interview with me. How and why did you start Voices of Esalen? Well, I'll begin by admitting this. Esalen saved my life. It really did. So to answer this question of why I started the podcast, I kind of have to start talking about how I ended up at Esalen in the first place. As you might know, one of the most famous outgrowths of Esalen and the human potential movement is Esalen massage. It's a very unique form of body work, and so I actually came to know of Esalen by way of massage. Back in 2003 or so, I felt very attracted to wanting to learn massage in a formal way. I was giving massages kind of spontaneously, And I thought to myself, I'd like to get the techniques. I'd like to be official. At that time, I was also hearing a lot about Bali and how great it was. So I literally typed something like learn massage plus Bali into some internet search engine. Uh, And I found this massage workshop being taught in Ubud, Bali by an Esalen practitioner named, uh, named Ellen Watson and her colleague Perry Holloman and his wife, Johanna. I don't know. It all seemed pretty legit. So I signed up. I ended up going to Bali, where I spent five weeks learning the art of Esalen massage, and I totally loved it. Uh, but, you know, I returned home, and that fall I went, kind of went back to my life. went to graduate school at CalArts, where I was in the critical studies department, and I had a joint major going on in integrated media, and I was doing fun things, often with sound. This is before podcasts were a thing, if I'm not mistaken, but I would have liked doing a podcast a lot back then, I think. Things would have made a lot more sense in my work, which was often unfocused and whatever. But overall, things were going good. I like academia. I've always liked academia. That's always been my comfort zone. But there comes a time when you have to leave school, apparently. And once I graduated, I kind of hit a rough patch, which we could refer to as the real world moved to Portland, which seemed like a great idea at the time, but ultimately the Pacific Northwest was fairly brutal. And I'm talking about the weather partially and culture and uh, my economics were really bad. I couldn't make any money. So to make a long story short, eventually I ended up moving back home with my parents in North Carolina at the age of 32 for six months there. Super humbling. Oh my gosh, that was, yeah, so humbling. It was, it was so humbling that it was actually kind of humorous and, and good for me. It, it's hard to describe, but it moving back home induced this egoic sadness within me. It's the kind that you can only earn through failure. And, and that sadness was something that 
I was privileged enough to swim through like every morning when I got up. My friend Howie had this saying. He was going through a tough time in his life, and it was like having shredded ego every morning for breakfast. And that's what it was like for me. I managed happily to get a job at a Massage Envy in a strip mall in, in Chapel Hill. For those of you who don't know, Massage Envy is uh, kind of like a the Starbucks of massage. It's a corporation that has franchises all over the place. And they had one in North Carolina. And I got a job there in this strip mall that I had gone to a lot growing up in high school. Uh, the Massage Envy was right across from a Brugger's Bagels. I made Brugger's Bagels type of money. I made like $14 an hour plus tips. Thank God for the tips. I drove my mom's car to work on Highway 15501 every day. And thus did I proceed down this somehow nourishing path of being humbled. And after six months, I did save up enough cash to move back out to California. And I was looking for a good way to land back in the Golden State. And through kind of a coincidence, I stumbled across the Esalen Work Scholar Program. And I remembered, yeah, I know Esalen because I had taken that massage workshop. And I was trying to figure out what the hell this place actually was, you know? When you're searching something on the internet, you come across the website and you try to discern what it actually is. Of course, it doesn't represent the thing itself. But I'm reading about human potential. That sounded pretty great to me, honestly, at the time, because as far as I could see, I was kind of at the bottom of my life. And I really hoped I had several more levels to climb. The more I thought about it, the more I was kind of psyched about the idea of coming to a place whose reason for being was exploring human potential. And I came to learn that the founders of Esalen, Michael Murphy and Dick Price, they drew a lot of inspiration from Aldous Huxley, who you might know as the author of A Brave New World and uh, Island, this very smart British dude who wrote about the human cost of technological progress. Uh, and who was also one of the first public figures to write and speak about mescaline uh, in the doors of perception. But Huxley was also entranced by this notion of what he called human potentialities. And along with Abraham Maslow's humanistic psychology, which was based around these ideas of self-actualization and peak experiences, this kind of formed the basis of the Esalen mission. I want to play a clip for you right now, a selection from a speech Algis Huxley gave at the San Francisco Medical Center in 1961, back when Michael Murphy and Dick Price were just getting ready to open the doors to uh, an early version of Esalen. I could envisage one of the big foundations, for example, setting up a research project. I don't think it would be necessarily very expensive. For, simply for examining what has been found empirically to work in these various fields. They would have to be prepared to look into material which wasn't exclusively scientific. Some of it would seem rather queer and phony and, and primitive. But after all, truth lives at the bottom of a well, and the well is very often muddy. And we mustn't be put off by the mud because the truth may be sitting there. I love that little tagline. Truth lives at the bottom of a well. We mustn't be put off by the mud. The truth may be sitting there. So I signed up for the Work Scholar Month, and I flew to the Bay Area, where I bought a car from a grad school friend for 1300 bucks, a 1990 Volvo station wagon that I still drive today. And I steered it down to Big Sur, and I stepped onto the Esalen property for the first time. And it was here in Big Sur that I fell deeply in love with meditation. I fell in love with the nature of Big Sur and really fell in love for the first time in my life with community. I just felt liked and held 
here by the community of people that was Esalen in those days. So uh, I realize this is getting kind of like long-winded, but but here's the part where I start to talk about the podcast itself. I did my work scholar months. I went away. I came back. I did some more. I fell in love with the woman who is going to become my wife eventually. Candace is fording. And, and I have to say that's the probably the greatest and most pivotal occurrence of my adult life, meeting her. And I eventually enrolled as an extended student here in a year-long program where I was taking a lot of workshops, getting my mind blown on the regular by, by teachers. Uh, for example, I was doing the radical aliveness work with Ann Bradney. I was writing my life with Ann Randolph. I did the Max with Paula Shaw. And I was just growing so much. I was seeing the people around me grow. And I just had this idea that this is kind of a shame that the only people who are experiencing the kind of transformational magic that I am experiencing are the ones who have figured out how to be in Big Sur at this property or the ones who can actually afford to be in Big Sur at this property. And I thought, could it be possible to experience these Esalen teachings that I found so provocative while one was away from Esalen? And I realized too that the, the digital experience probably would never capture the magic of Big Sur. It would never sort of hold that in-person vibe of healing and transformation. But maybe, I thought, if someone came to property and they caught fire kind of like I had done, they refound themselves, then maybe some sort of digital experience or an audio experience could enable them to rekindle that ember. And perhaps there's someone out there driving down a cold North Carolina highway on their way to a low-paying job who could run across an episode on iTunes that spoke to them and it could lead them to this place of growth. So those were my modest goals. That was the hope. That was the vision. So as an extended student, I brought my idea to some people, among them Ian Michael Hebert, Geraldine Hess, and then crucially programs director Cheryl Franzel. And I was able to start the show in early 2016. Okay, that sounds kind of corny. I'm going to try to find a better logo identifier kind of thing. What was the first episode of the show and what was it about? What do you remember about it? The first episode of Voices of Esalen was with Peter Myers, and it was about communication. Uh, he didn't like it when I described it like this, but what Peter talked about was public speaking, basically, and how hard it is, ultimately how useful it, it can be and how powerful it is. So Peter's this brilliant actor and speaker, and he's extremely good at speaking in front of a room. Here's a little clip from the first episode of Voices of Esalen. But the amygdala is the uh, small and very old part of the brain that constantly searches the environment to scan for danger. And when the amygdala uh, looks out and sees 20 or 200 mammals staring at you in the dark, the old part of the brain remembers this for hundreds of thousands of years and knows that when there are a lot of mammals staring at you in the dark, it can only mean one thing. You're about to be lunch. And as it begins to send signals, alarms through your biological system, it begins to uh, redirect blood flow into the large muscle groups to prepare you to run or to fight. As it redirects that blood to the large muscle groups, it drains blood from key organs that aren't needed in a fight or flight response. And one of them is the cerebral cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain. So if you've ever stood in front of a group of people and felt stupid, it's because, well, you are. 
<laughs> your IQ has dropped through the floor. You're operating with the IQ of a, of a rhesus monkey in that moment. So, yeah, people talk about first episodes and how much they suck. But this interview actually went well. Peter was a really good choice for a first episode. He was so pro, so polished. He really did the interview, not me. I, I just served up the softballs and he knocked them out of the park. It's still my formula today. But uh, my second interview was with Ann Randolph. She was my teacher back in the old work scholar days. This was another great choice because Ann would pretty much say anything. She's an actress and a teacher, and she's quite outrageous, quite hilarious. Here's me asking her for tips on getting a laugh. Tips for getting a laugh. I think at first it's, you know, sometimes it's just, can you laugh at yourself first? Can you <laughs> laugh at your own ridiculousness that these limbs, these arms, our mouth, you know, our, just our thoughts, you know, sometimes our thoughts are shameful, right? But if you could turn, even looking at a thought that is shameful and see, is there any humor that I can find in that shameful thought? She's so brilliant. I'm still working on that. I'm still working on learning how to laugh at myself and finding the humor in my own absurdity. Okay, that's more like it. Were the first episodes popular? How many people listened to them? Well, this show was a plant of slow growth, to be sure. And when we started, pretty much no one knew about it. There was no announcement or anything like that. I, I think early episodes got like 35 plays or something like that. Like nothing. Then the, the, after a little while, the show started to grow in a very organic way by word of mouth, I can only assume. I personally was very shy about it and rarely told people I had a podcast. My attitude was just for the people who are meant to find out about it, they'll find it. And I always felt like part of the reason I'm doing this show is to contribute to the archive at Esalen. And more than that, to contribute to the collective archive of recordings on planet Earth. Like, I've always been a pretty big nerd when it comes to making recordings. Uh, my sister, Becky, and I would make tapes when I was like three years old, pretending to be a weatherman. I was a huge deadhead for a really long time. I was super into the tapes. I had like 500 bootlegs at one point. Back in the day when you had to bust out those Maxell Type 2s and do a real-time recording on a double cassette recorder. I was just drawn to trying to craft this archive of interviews that would last forever. And maybe it was a rationalization. But I felt like the real-time audience I could draw in the moment was, in a certain way, secondary to that. What's cool is it's taken like six years or so, however long we've been doing the show, but the audience size has actually grown quite a bit. We just reached half a million listens. When we post a new episode, it'll get several thousand listens quite quickly. The most popular episodes have been listened to more than 10 or 15,000 times, which is nothing compared to a really popular podcast, but it's... It's enough for me to feel like I'm making some sort of dent in the consciousness of this funky planet. And that, I think, after years and years of trying to be an artist, it, that is what I'm going for. It doesn't have to be a broad cultural impact. It has to be some impact. And I rest easier at night knowing that the teachings I admire are being broadcast a bit more widely because of the efforts uh, of the show. That's cheesy. That's that's too cheesy. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep that anymore. I'm going to have to look around for a, another logo. But anyway, what are your favorite podcasts and who are your favorite hosts? 
Well, the podcast that inspired me to start Voices of Esalen was the Tim Ferriss show. I was just listening to him a lot when he first started uh, his show, which I think was around 2015. And I just liked the way that the dude was into giving really actionable advice. It was like each episode was about getting down to business, give some information, talk to important people. Obviously, he's preparing for these guests in a really careful and kind of like studious way. To me, each episode was like a gift for the listener. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I kind of thought to myself, not... I could do that, but better. It was more like, I could do that, but worse. And my version of worse would probably still be good enough to listen to. Side note, I actually met Tim Ferriss at Esalen in about 2018. He was there for a week attending a conference, and I knew he was there, and I just decided I wanted to meet him and tell him, hey, you inspired me. But I'm not that good at breaking the ice with famous people. That's not a talent of mine. Uh, I tend to just freeze up and let the moment pass me by, unfortunately. But in this case, I was like, I've listened to a hundred episodes or more of this guy's show. I feel like I know him. I know he's kind of nice. He's nerdy. He's sweet, whatever. I can talk to him. So it was the last day of the conference and I saw him get in line for some food. So I zoomed over there and I tried to stand behind him, but there was actually one of my coworkers was standing behind him. So I motioned to her. I was like, would you mind? I said, uh, sorry. Tim. (laughs) So he turned around and I stuck my hand out, which I instantly regretted because that's a faux pas. I mean, no one wants to shake some random dude's hand, but unfortunately there it was my right hand just dangling in front of him. So he took my hand slowly and I stammered, I'm Sam. Uh, I just want to thank you for your work. And that's it. I got that much out and I clammed up. I couldn't think of the next thing to say. Nothing like I run the podcast at Esalen or you were the one who inspired me to start a podcast. None of that. I was just kind of like gawking and holding on to his paw. But he was very nice. And actually, he, he was like, Sam, what's your last name? And I was like, Stern. And he said, Sam Stern. Thanks. <laughs> and I kind of slunk away without getting any food just to cut off the interaction and make it be not horrible. And I waited like 15 minutes before I got in line. I don't know why he wanted to know my last name. Maybe he was committing it to memory in his huge brain or something like that. But I still listen to his show all the time. Other podcasts I really like are For the Wild. That's Ayana Young's show. She was on Voices of Esalen recently. I like Apology, hosted by Jesse Pearson. He's the former managing editor of Vice Magazine, Uh, And that's mostly about books. I often listen to The Daily. I think Michael Barbaro is the best ever. He's insane. I listen to Democracy Now! quite a bit. I haven't listened in the past six months or a year because it was putting me in a state of panic. But I love Amy Goodman. I love her work ethic. I listen to WTF with Mark Maron. I uh, admire his conversational style. It's very inspirational and pretty amazing to behold. I could never do that, but he's a stand-up comic, so he kind of has an advantage over the rest of the people. He's paid to talk well. But yeah, there's something about the way he grills people, and he's not afraid to fail. He's not afraid to be insulting to people in a certain way. I, I feel like I'm too nice to the people that I interview because I don't want to go through the process of them stonewalling me or being flustered or... I don't know. He likes the sometimes confounded interactions. So another show I listen to quite a bit, to be honest, is the Bill Simmons show. Uh, I'm probably addicted to it. This is a sports show for those of you who don't know sports and culture, but I wouldn't listen to the culture. I I come there for the basketball. I can't decide whether it's a bad habit or it's acceptable behavior, but it seems to fill some sort of need for me. And that's it. 
I mean, I'm always, I'm always listening to new shows. It's often the podcast that the guests I'm about to have on the show have already done. That's the best way to research them. And it helps me know what they've already talked about. If there's a great question, I could repeat it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, Oftentimes, if there's additional information that hasn't been covered in the show, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask that. But yeah, I discover new new shows uh, all the time. I'm just in love with podcasts. Thank God for podcasts. That's what I have to say about that. Okay, I don't know about that. That's, I don't know if that's better than the saxophone logo. I'm not sure. Who have been some of your favorite people to talk to? This is tough. Really, everyone? I know that's like, it sounds like a cop-out, but they've kind of all been good. Like 99% of the people I've spoken to have been pretty incredible. That's where I feel lucky. Because every time I go out and work and do an interview, not only am I contributing to this archive, but I'm building my own understanding. I'm probably benefiting more than anybody else out there, whether it's the person being interviewed or the person in the audience, I'm getting to be in the presence of someone who's really special. And kind of even more than that, I'm getting to be in the presence of their accumulated knowledge. And I just love that. So to pick a couple, Jeff Kripal is a standout interview for me. He gave me a lot of insight into the social and cultural history of Esalen. There was a kind of serendipity here. There was a kind of massive synchronicity between what Mike and Dick wanted to do and what the culture was ready for. An idea is an idea that's waiting for the right cultural or social moment. And what you have to understand about early Esalen is that none of the ideas were new. The ideas had been floating in the culture and in these writers' lives for sometimes decades but nobody was listening. And in the early 60s, you then have this youth culture that suddenly is listening, and it's this magical alchemy that creates this movement. It really becomes famous. It becomes one of the nodes of this counterculture, and it's where, it's where you want to go. You know, so George Harrison lands here with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi on, on the front lawn in a helicopter. I mean, you don't... So it, it's got cultural cachet, Eslin certainly did not produce the counterculture by any stretch of the imagination, but it happened to get going right as that was happening. And then, then they become synergistic. By 71, there were serious holes and crises in the heavy movement. It had been going nine years then, you know, and like a lot of, like a lot of utopian or charismatic communities, you expect, you expect utopia, you know, and then when it doesn't happen, then you've got to kind of re regroup, as it were. What's the most challenging thing about hosting a podcast? For me, the most challenging thing about hosting this podcast is doing the intro at the top of the show. Because I have this issue with falling into like a newscaster voice where I tend to go like, Hi, I'm Sam Stern. This is my voice. And it's like, no one cares. People are people are here to learn. So you got to deliver the information and get out of the way. But that's harder to do than I thought it would be. I think I've gotten better as I've done more and more shows. It's like not as earth shattering for me to do the intros. So the more comfortable and kind of deadpan I can be, I think the better it comes out generally. I have a few techniques that I use. 
to try to produce better intros. And one is to speak more quickly than usual and just let the information kind of rush out of me. And that sort of gets rid of that overly self-conscious announcer-like voice from me. Another is to emphasize random words in the text that I write out. I think I got that from these, like, I believe to be on purpose, nerdy NPR narrators who dominate certain kinds of uh, discourses in the audio world. Because I noticed they were doing these reads where instead of saying the most challenging thing about doing a podcast is getting out of the way, they'd say something like the most challenging thing about doing a podcast is getting out of the way. And they were emphasizing something random instead of the expected word. And it was somehow producing these sort of like reads that were easier to listen to for some reason. I don't know. I'm still not great at it. I'm very, very jealous of people like Duncan Trussell, who hosts the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. He clearly improvises most, if not all, of his intros. And he just speaks his mind. He lets it flow. And it kind of sounds like he's having a conversation with you, even though he's talking to himself. I cannot do that. I've tried, and it just doesn't work for me. Like, I can't make up things spontaneously. The most painful experience of my life was taking this improv course at the Groundlings in Los Angeles when I was in my 20s. This is the school that all these Saturday Night Live people like Will Ferrell and Maya Rudolph came from. I just figured it would be good for me. No, it wasn't. I was a mess. My brain got scared when I stood up in front of people with nothing to say. It just froze up. So my style is I write my intros out. I try to keep it brief. I try not to get too self-conscious. I do like three takes. I pick what I believe is the best one. And then I hope that the music covers up all the weird moments. What else has been a challenge with the podcast? I would say that my own doubt has been one of the greatest impediments at times. This show has taken a good long time to get a critical mass behind it, and I've taken a good long time to get competent at it. It's kind of like that Malcolm Gladwell idea of doing your 10,000 hours at anything before you get really good at it. Well, in truth, that's a lot of hours. If you work for three hours a day at something, that's actually going to take you more than 3,000 days to get good. That's nine years. Being comfortable with failure has been so crucial for me. When I first came to Esalen as an extended student, I worked in the maintenance department, which was likely the most humbling experience of my adult life. I'll share this with you. I didn't know which way to turn a screwdriver when I started in that department. At Esalen, the accommodations are all super beautiful. It's like all this redwood, but half of these buildings were built in the 70s. And some of these systems are old. So you got to like know how to take apart sinks, drains, and address water systems and filtration, constantly unclogged toilets. You got to know how to build shelves, and stages, use chop saws, jigsaws, routers, drill bits. I was a straight up menace to society and to carpentry when I started there. It was just embarrassing. But Part of my process and whatever I do seems to be about failing in public or on the job and just getting better in that way. I don't know why I'm like that, but I'm very deadline oriented. And that's why a format like a podcast works well for me. But the flip side to that is that, uh, you know, if your work is going to be received on a serialized basis in public, inevitably you will flop in front of people like a lot, like a lot, a lot. So over these last six or seven years, I've had to listen to my own episodes on iTunes or Spotify and realize that I've got a really long way to go. And if I'm not in the right state of mind, that's when the doubt starts to seep in. And questions like, am I good enough at this to keep doing it? Is this all a colossal and frankly embarrassing waste of time? 
But what I've actually kind of learned how to do is accept the doubt and just like have it. Like if I was holding a suitcase or a bag, just like have that, not believe it all the time, not try to reason my way out of it and pretend that it's not valid. I did an interview actually with Cheryl Strayed some years back. She, she wrote Wild. She's this really amazing, inspiring writer. And along with Cheryl, I interviewed the author Steve Almond, her very close friend. Together they do a podcast called Dear Sugar where they, it's, they offer advice, actually very sound advice, very funny though too. And Steve was quite hilarious, quite brilliant. And he came up with this to say on the subject of doubt. And I think it's very wise. People live actually where they live is in doubt and uncertainty. Any sort of moral assurance is just, it's demented. I mean, it's sort of the trademark of, of fascist thought. People are really in doubt all the time. So we find ourselves always, 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 I always say to people, you know, run towards the shame. That's where the truth is hiding, always in that area. And Charles D'Ambrosio talks about this in these, in these essays, loitering is every essay begins in doubt. And if it's any good, it sort of stays there in a certain way because that's what readers can really connect to. So I don't look at failures. I mean, I get down on myself about it. I have a lot of failed projects that never take off and I beat myself up about it. But I also have realized that doubt is kind of your engine, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the thing that keeps you going. Mm -hmm. And if you ever reach a point of self-satisfaction, I don't think it would be possible to do something as lonely and just sort of grueling in its isolation and concentration requirements as writing. Mm -hmm. Live and learn at Esalen for four weeks with the Live Extended Education Program, or LEAP. Under the guidance of our skilled faculty, surrounded by a cohort of 12 other learners, students will be challenged to expand their personal growth edges and open up to greater discoveries of self and community. The first program cohort is happening January 15th, and it runs to February 11th. Applications are open for the second cohort. You know you want to do it. So go to esalen.org to apply. What episode gave you some simple, practical advice? I got the chance to interview Kristen Neff a few years ago. She's one of the leading experts in the field of self-compassion. First off, what Kristen did is she reminded me that self-compassion is not quite the same thing as self-esteem. I thought that was an important distinction. Self-esteem is good, she said, and it's better to have it than not to have it. But unfortunately, People tend to get self-esteem in unhealthy ways. Like, for example, bullying is a way that young kids gain self-esteem. Feeling special, above average, in other words, narcissism, that also is a path to self-esteem. And self-esteem is also contingent. In other words, we have self-esteem when we succeed, but it tends to desert us when we fail. Self-compassion, on the other hand, is a much more reliable friend. So how does that work? I would say, to put it really simply, it entails offering the kind of kindness and empathy to yourself in moments of pain or doubt that you would a treasured friend. Uh, I have a two-year-old daughter, so my life is often pretty tumultuous, and I have to come to grips with my lack of skill often in parenting, or my tendency towards anger or unwise speech, yeah, it just slips out sometimes. And I use self-compassion as a daily tool to help me get through it. Like, I will actually say to myself, this is really hard, Sam. You're doing well. You're a good guy. And it felt pretty dumb to do this at first, but now I depend on it. Here's Dr. Kristen Neff on self-compassion. I was just kind of curious about your personal path using self-compassion. How, how has it changed your life? Oh, well, what I really, really saw its benefit um, was when my son was diagnosed with autism. You know, it was probably the, the biggest challenge I had faced so far in my life. And, um, 
you know, actually the day um, he was diagnosed, I was scheduled to go on a meditation retreat. So I, so I did that and um, I just uh, really was able to hold all my feelings, right? So there was the mindfulness accepting all these feelings coming up. You know, feelings you think you aren't supposed to have, like disappointment. You know, how do you feel disappointment and the thing you love most, you know, in the world, your child? But, you know, that came up and I allowed myself to accept the feelings of grief and disappointment. But more than accepting the feelings, it was the tenderness. I could say, this is so hard for you, darling. You know, that kind of, that warm, supportive relationship I was able to have with myself through it is really what gave me the strength to bear it, you know. And then um, I found that the more I could be warm and supportive toward myself, obviously the more warm and supportive I could be toward my son that it, it, it wasn't at all selfish, that I was it actually gave me the resources I needed to be the most unconditionally loving parent I could toward my son. There we go. Clean, clear, to the point. What concepts have you most appreciated being exposed to while talking to your guests? Okay, I have a good one for this question. The concept that I really have appreciated being exposed to is this concept of mudita, that's sympathetic or vicarious joy. Uh, it's kind of like the pleasure that comes from delighting in someone else's pleasure, if that makes any sense. This is pretty huge for me because I'm generally a pretty happy person. I don't get depressed that much as long as I get some exercise and sunshine and I get to spend enough time with my wife. But traditionally, I also have had a kind of a difficult time accessing my own joy. So I was talking to Shauna Shapiro who's been a guest several times. She's a very talented mindfulness teacher and author. And she said something that helped me understand the fact that there are many roads to joy. I did an exercise in the workshop this morning where I had people just focus on what brings you joy. And they asked their partner, what brings you joy over and over again? What brings you joy? And they'd say sunshine and ice cream and connection and your smile and this moment and the ocean. And you would feel the energy in the room building. And I was teaching them how to actually be present with that and receive it into their body and let it nourish them and to feel their joy in someone else's joy. That you're not just, it's not just about you and finding what makes you happy. It's also actually seeing someone else become joyful and feeling how good that feels to witness that. It's called mudita. And it's one of the most beautiful practices is this empathic joy in someone else's joy. And what the Dalai Lama says is you will never be depressed again if you practice mudita, because there's always one person that's having a good day that you can be like, oh, they're, they're joyful. Okay, I'll take joy in their joy. You've been full-time at Esalen since 2014. What's your favorite thing about working there? My favorite thing about working at Esalen is the land. Just getting to be on this land on a, on a regular basis, seeing it change people and feeling it hold me. Yeah, I feel really lucky for that. I have a couple selections from Voices of Esalen podcasts that touch upon the land that I want to share with you. The first one is Peggy Haran talking about the integrity of this land. Um, the second clip is from Shauna Shapiro again, talking about the power of this land. And then following that up with Pico Iyer. He's a travel writer, uh, one of the most articulate human beings probably walking the face of this planet. And yeah, he's got his own thing to say about the Esalen land. So I'll, I'll play these three clips in succession. It's a majesty and the integrity of the land is just beyond words. And, and I think that's one reason that we've maintained. And we're remote and we're small 
and intimate. And, and I'll tell you, everybody that comes there feels like they've come home. And those are the words you hear again and again from the seminarians and the guests. And I think what they really feel is they've come home to themselves. And it's a place where that's supported. And that's what we want people to come home to themselves. We want that for ourselves. We want that for you, you know. Find out who you are. Come and learn. There's something so sacred about this land and so nourishing about just being in the elements, you know, with the ocean, the sound of the ocean, the majestic sky and the stars and the sunset every night you know everything stops at sunset and everyone gathers and watches it and it's it's how we're supposed to live this life for me what what always kind of just opens my heart is going into the garden and just seeing not just the flowers that are exquisite and you know huge and and colorful but the the vegetables and how full and healthy and gorgeous they are and just knowing that they're getting picked and that i'm putting them in my body is I feel so much more connected to the entire process of life just being on this land. As soon as you're south of maybe Carmel, north of Cambria, the outside world falls away and the inner world becomes extraordinary. That's, I mean, that's what Esalen is about and why this is the place for Esalen, the thinking about the world of possibility. And the sovereign spirits here, we all know, are these tall trees and the stars beyond number and the surf crashing on the rocks, which puts us in place. We, we bow and kneel before everything that's larger than us here. And there's also this sense that you're slipping out of time and touching eternity. You know, the, the Greeks talk about chronos, which is watch time, versus kairos, which is sacred time, which is the calendar stitched together out of our life-changing movements. And I feel you step into Kairos, that this whole ground is sacred ground. And of course, it has been for the indigenous population. But it's no coincidence there are so many churches and so many transformations along this coastline. Who would you consider your wisest teacher? That's an easy one. Uh, Roxy, Soleil, Stern. My firstborn, my daughter. What do you got to say today? You want to talk about any of your new words? Mm. Can you say guava? Guava. Can you say cocoa? I don't know. I know. Can you say cocoa? Yeah. Wait a second. What about guava? Mm. <laughs> You're so funny. Hey, what about cocoa? Coco. You're so good. I love mama. Oh God, you're good. What is your recording setup like? This has changed a lot over the years. When I started, I think I was using some Audio-Technica clip-on mics. Each of them fed into this splitter that attached to my phone, and I was recording on voice memos or some app that was like called Record, I think. That got me through the first couple of shows. I also did some interviews over the phone on a site called freeconferencecall.com. It was very easy. You could create an MP3 right on the computer, but it often sounded pretty bad, um, which didn't bother me at the time. I was like, we're just getting started. This is okay. But eventually, uh, an Esalen friend, Ian Golden, who is a DJ and a professional sound designer, he came to me and he said, no, this is not okay. This will not stand. And he gave me a couple of large diaphragm mics. I think they were Rode NT1A mics. That's R-O-D-E, uh, NT1A mics, as well as a Zoom H4N recorder. 
And he also helped me find a room at Esalen that was quiet, probably the quietest room on property. That was our goal. And by the way, Esalen, for being way far out in nature, is a pretty noisy place. Always the Pacific Ocean to contend with. And that's a lot louder than you might expect in terms of creating background noise. And then there's also Highway 1 kind of in the distance there. So we basically chose our room, Hope Cottage, for those of you who know, who know where that is. We set up a portable table, I got some boom arms, and I did a whole bunch of interviews like that. And I gotta admit, it sounded way better. So for a few years, I kind of became a sound snob with regards to recording. And to that end, I did almost no remote interviews. The, the policy was like, we gotta do in-person interviews. They're better for connecting. They make more sense for what we're trying to do with the show. But then in spring 2020, of course, COVID happened and everything changed. At that point, right away, I did only remote interviews. And they sounded, well, I mean, they sounded the way Zoom interviews sound, but something else had changed, and that was people's expectations around sound. Because now it was okay to have a mediocre-sounding interview in terms of the sound quality because everyone was doing it. And I ultimately felt okay with that. I was the person who's like, sound quality is not all that key in the first place because you know in the end i think a podcast is more about transmitting information than it is about creating high fidelity recordings like that's for music but and and of course doing remote recordings it widens your net you can talk to people all across the world instead of just those who are visiting big sur so i'm into it i've also done a lot of my recordings recently in the past year or two using a blue yeti USB microphone on my end. That's a pretty good mic for the money. It costs about $139 on Amazon. Uh, just this year, I've upgraded to a Shure SM7B in hopes that it sounds even better. That's what I'm actually using right now. That seems to be an industry standard mic from what I understand. And yeah, that's my setup. Of course, with remote interviews, I can't really control what people use on their end. You can always ask somebody to put their phone near them and record into that at the same time that they talk to you on Zoom and then send you the file after the interview. That's kind of a trick because phones will often yield a better recording than Zoom will. Before I close this discussion on recording setups, just for comparison, I'm going to mention that Tim Ferriss did an episode recently where he talked about his gear. He uses for remote recordings an Audio-Technica ATR 2100X, which costs $99. I checked on the internet. His policy is that he'll also buy uh, another of those mics. He'll ship it to his guest and then have them use it. That's not an option for me right now, but maybe one day. And for in-person recordings, he will use a Shure SM58 mic. Again, that's about a $99 mic. So not too bad on the pocketbook right there. Who created your theme music? The Voices of Esalen theme music, which has run for most of this show, starting in about 2017 or so, was composed by Nico Holloman. Nico is the son of Esalen legends Perry and Johanna Holloman, who have been teaching deep body work at Esalen for decades. Perry and Johanna, as I mentioned, were actually my first Esalen teachers, along with Ellen Watson. I took their Esalen massage workshop in 2003. And that's when I met Nico for the first time. He was five years old, and he was my favorite person in the whole program. We kind of became best friends during, during that time. And I guess it was about 15 years later that we reconnected. He was a young adult by then, and he just turned out to be some kind of musical prodigy and just a fantastic person all in all. 
So I hired him to create some music that I could use for the podcast. Up to that point, I was getting music from copyright-free websites, notably Free Music Archive. Some of it was really cool. Some of it was probably not all that great. I changed the intro music each week, which is a branding no-no, of course. You can listen to some of the early episodes, judge for yourself. But yeah, I love what Nico did. And it's very special to have a theme music be original to Big Sur. What mistakes did you used to make that you don't make now? This is another easy one to answer. Sometimes I will admit I did not prepare enough for my guests. Life gets busy and, you know, that's the number one thing I had to learn the hard way. Because when you freestyle, that's dangerous. It's very dangerous not to have a deep understanding of someone's offering or teachings and then expect to kind of like find it along the way. Because it just, sometimes it just does not happen. I had to learn how to pivot when my original question hit a brick wall. And I also had to learn something really simple. It doesn't really matter all the time if the interview is going well or going smoothly. You're allowed to back up and ask the question again. Steve Paulson, he's a very experienced NPR sound reporter and journalist, and he schooled me on the art of the interview. And he told me that it's okay to say, you know, I really didn't get what I needed from that. Could we try it again? Because in a way, an interview is a performance. It sounds a lot like a conversation, but in some pretty important ways, it's not a conversation. It's a method and a mode of delivering information and telling stories. So I'm still learning this lesson around really owning the space and directing this performance, so to speak, so that I can actually put the listener in the space of, of relaxation. I've been a very laid back host for probably too long. Like in my mind, I might be thinking, well, this part's going on too long. Uh, I'm not quite getting what I need but I'm not gonna say anything because I don't wanna offend anyone. Well, that's not doing the world a favor. And coming back to my original point, if I'm not prepared for what I wanna hear out of the person I'm speaking to, I can't really coax it out of them because I just don't know enough. So basically it all comes back to listening to a ton of interviews that the people have already done, reading books or articles that they've written and spending the time to create extra questions. With all that in place, then you're allowed to improvise. And I got to say, people love it when you have obviously done the reading and done the research. If you say, I read the book and you didn't, they always know. They can just smell it. What has been your favorite conference that has convened at Esalen during the time you've been here? One of my favorite conferences was the 2019 Psychedelic Integration Conference that I attended as kind of a reporter. I was recording all the audio at the conference. And this was super cool for me because that spot... I filled was in such high demand. I think a thousand people signed up for the conference and there were only a hundred seats. So I felt kind of good that I had figured out a way to weasel myself in through the door. And this was a great lineup at the psychedelic conference. Julie Holland, Michael Pollan, Rick Doblin of MAPS, Ben Sessa. In the end, I think I got seven episodes drawn di directly from the speakers of that conference. And they're all amazing. Here's a couple of clips from Michael Pollan's speech. I've been interested in all the different things plants do for humans. Uh, they feed us, they give us beauty, and the weirdest thing they do for us, I think, is give us these modes of uh, ways to change consciousness. And that these are all fundamental human desires, and that uh, the desire to change consciousness is um, found in every culture on Earth, uses a plant or a fungus to change consciousness, with one exception. And that's the Inuit, because nothing good grows where they live. <laughs> the only reason. 
as soon as they move to Canada, they get with the program and they find their plant drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. I interviewed a lot of the people who'd gone through the smoking cessation study. They, would, they had the weirdest, I, w I would say, like, why were you able to stop smoking uh, after a single psychedelic trip? It seems so implausible. And I remember this one woman telling me, she was this Irish woman, about 60, and she said, well, I had the most amazing trip. I, I sprouted wings and I flew through European history and I witnessed all these incredible scenes and I met Shakespeare and Galileo and I died three times. I saw my smoke rise from the Ganges and, and I realized, you know, there's so much to do and see in the world that killing yourself with cigarettes is really stupid. <laughs> And this incredibly banal insight was like written on a tablet and she could live by it and she's still not smoking. And so that, whatever we explain it as, is a powerful tool in therapy. If you can make people so sure of an obvious insight like that, that I'm sure she's heard a million times, um, you can work with that, it seems to me. So I think we have to be very aware of that. I, I, I do think that a lot of the insights I had were not new, but I felt them in a way I had previously only understood them. What have been the hardest interviews that you've done hosting Voices of Esalen? I would say the set of interviews that I did in 2020 after the police killing of George Floyd were among the, the hardest and most humbling interviews that I've done for Voices of Esalen. I had to take a look, first of all, and see that to that point, I'd done almost no interviews with people of color. It, it was insane, and it, it feels shameful to say it out loud and admit to that even now, because I'd been doing the show for like four years at that time, and the body of work I generated was very, very white. So I had to realize that I'd done a huge disservice to the show, to my audience, and to myself by ignoring the diversity piece. And I took a really close look at the human potential movement in general at that point, and I saw that it was sorely lacking in diversity as well. Um, or rather, I didn't, I didn't see that. I was helped to see that, in part by one of my guests, Camila Majid. Then the humbling aspect of these interviews continued because I was beginning to ask about the black experience, but if I was going to be honest, I was also going to have to admit that I had not thought at great length about racism and its impact. I'd thought very little about white supremacy. These just weren't concepts that I'd given a lot of intellectual space and time to. So again, I was kind of flailing around in public. I wasn't an expert. I couldn't even begin to try to be one. But at the same time, these were some of my favorite interviews because I learned the most. This is Dr. Biko Gray on diversity as paternalistic tokenism. I, 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 would you mind if I quoted you from a, a Twitter quote? Is that I don't okay? mind at all. <laughs> diversity is paternalistic tokenism. And it's like yeah. I had never thought about it that way. I had never thought about it that much at all. Tell, tell, talk to me a little bit about that. What I mean here is, is that, I mean, I'm a professor, right? And so I'm sitting within the context of an institution that has consistently said that it is after diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And what this usually means, um, what this usually means is that they want to slap a couple of black people on some flyers and essentially put them out there to say, hey, like, look, we are, um, you know, hey, look, we are absolutely for black folks or people of color or whatever the new acronym is that comes out of these particular kinds of sort of like, 
mainline liberal conversations. And 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 in my and so I, I so I look at that and I say this sounds a lot like uh, what Eugene Genovese talked about when he talks about paternalism within the context of, the, of, of, ensla- of, of enslavement. And so what essentially he says is that a lot of like white masters, to use a, for lack of a better word, would say they were good masters because they were nice to their black slaves. This is what he would say, or this is what these masters would say. And I look at, I look at diversity discourses in very, very, very similar ways. That at the end of the day, what you're looking at is, a, is an institution saying we're nice to our black people and we are nice to black people more generally. Look at how many black people we have coming to our school. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, it's paternalistic because it is essentially saying that this institution is here to take care of black people, to be nice to black people, right? But then on the other hand, it's also tokenistic because the, the, the evidence for this is, is, for example, taking pictures of particular professors while they're smiling and saying, look, we've got black people here, we're nice. And so for me, what that actually does is reinforce the violence of anti-blackness because you're actually not doing the work of restructuring the institution to be reconfigured around questions of equity, to be reconfigured around questions of what we might call anti-racist work. No curriculums change because of this. And hiring a chief diversity officer does absolutely nothing to change the material demands and the material circumstances of black students, of black professors, of black staff, of black workers. It does nothing to change those things. But now you have someone who can hire a high-paid person from outside of the institution to essentially tell to essentially tell the institution and particularly black faculty members who study race what they already know. And so in my mind, I look at this and I say, no, like diversity discourses actually are not useful at all because they offer nothing by way of the shift. In, in my own institution, I'll give you a good example. A group of students have been protesting since I got there three years ago. We've had a series of racist scandals occur within the context of my institution since I stepped foot on there. Every year, one time, every year we've had it happen. And so every time we get this message from our chancellor that essentially says, hey, we are working toward this. We value our black students. We do this. We do that. Group of black students gets pistol whipped near campus. We are working on this. We're doing this. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get this right. Black people, uh, an anti-black slur shows up on the, on the mirror of a dorm. We're working on this. We're going to get it right. We're going to do these things. And, and, and after a while, the black students began to say, hey, look, like, here are our demands. You need to, like, really consider, like, making very real adjustments. And when it came down to it, the institution was unwilling to budge on many of the most substantial demands that these students made. But we're about diversity, which means that we'll be nice to you when we see you. But it doesn't mean that we're actually going to change the material circumstances, uh, and we're not going to shift, for example, the policing structure in our institutions. We're not going to shift, for example, the sort of the, the, the ways in which curriculums are structured around a certain normative white canon. We're not going to amplify black studies departments. We're not going to amplify religious studies departments by giving them more faculty lines and making them central to our curriculum. We're not going to do any of that. What we're actually going to do is, 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 is make people nice. That, that's, that's the whole sort of move. And, and for me, that's paternalism 
Uh, and then the tokenism, as I said before, becomes, you know, essentially taking pictures of folks and advertising for them. <laughs> right. does, that, does, that make, does that make sense? Yeah, like, yeah. What will you be focusing on for most of this year's interviews? We are going to do another deep dive on psychedelics and psychedelic psychotherapy in 2022. I started off last year with about 10 interviews on psychedelics, but so much has happened in the interim and so much is going to continue to happen that we're going to focus there for at least the next 10 episodes, probably more. Uh, One great thing about doing this show under the Esalen imprint is that we've got history in the psychedelic world, and I think people respect that. So I'm able to attract experts in this field, which feels great. And I personally have a lot of respect for the outcomes that I'm, that I'm seeing in the realm of psychedelic psychotherapy with regards to conditions that have previously been thought of as intractable, such as PTSD, such as depression, such as eating disorders. Uh, we're seeing amazing outcomes in these, with, uh, in these conditions with psychedelics. And I find that exciting. So I want to see more and I want to learn more. Do you have any advice for folks who might want to start their own podcast? Yes, you should go for it. And here's why. Just on a purely selfish level, doing interviews with people allows you to get closer to them. Do you have somebody who you look up to, who you'd love to have lunch with for personal or professional reasons, but you can't figure out how to do it? By God, you need a microphone. Because this person who you desire to sit across from would likely be honored by your request to have a conversation, tape it, and broadcast it. I'm telling you, This is just a fact of life here. People love to be asked questions about themselves. I myself love it. That's why I'm interviewing myself at this moment. (laughs) And I think that the relationship that's forged by casting yourself as the interviewer, AKA the student, and then casting the object of your interest as the interviewee, AKA teacher, that creates a healthy and in many cases, lasting bond. And that's just checking off the selfish box, folks. What about all the people who are eventually going to listen to your show and learn from you? What about the lives you might end up changing and hopefully bettering? This is huge. And might I add that everyone is doing this? Yeah, everyone and their cousin kind of has a podcast right now. So why shouldn't you? I know if the field is crowded, it'll make it that much harder for you to gain stardom and big sponsorships, but that's probably not the goal. Maybe you'll make some money. I mean, maybe you won't make money. Maybe that won't matter. Or maybe you'll make money from your podcast in a way that you didn't expect. Like you interview somebody and they're so impressed by you, they end up offering you a job. Or you interview somebody and they inspire you so much that you end up following that thread to a new career. Know what I'm saying? So let's talk about downside. Is there a downside to this scenario? I'm struggling to find one because I'm actually getting excited about this right now, thinking about you whatever and whoever anonymous you that I'm talking to right now, creating a podcast that only you could create. Maybe you're a senior citizen. Maybe you're trans. Maybe you're trans senior citizen. There's no podcast that speaks to your demographic really well right now. Maybe you're a Republican. Maybe you're a cannabis enthusiast. Maybe you're a cannabis enthusiast who's Republican and you want to showcase more and more of your brethren out there. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you have a great idea for a podcast that would help toddlers learn life skills. Okay, only you can do this. That's my point here. I'll also add that my strategy for birthing a podcast came from going to the powers that be or or were at the place that I already worked. 
and convincing them to invest in a show. So maybe you work at a place and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, this place could actually use a podcast. That's a different model than just going out and doing your own show. But if it's aligned with your intentions and it would give you space to grow, then it could also be pretty great for you. So I'm passionate about this subject, clearly. So if you're feeling the vibe and you want to bounce an idea off me, write to me at voices at esalen.org. That's voices at esalen.org. And just use me as a sounding board. So that's it, everyone. Thanks for sticking around and indulging me in this self-interview. It was actually a lot of fun. I'm going to leave you with a clip drawn from one of my favorite interviews. This is with yoga teacher and overall great person, Janet Stone. She's speaking about the concept of enoughness. I put in some music from Shastro in the background. Be well and enjoy a healthy start to your new year. Yeah, enoughness. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a real word, but it sure is in my lexicon what it's become because really what's happening with us, even in the yoga industry, what's happening with us is that we're consuming and we're consuming and we're consuming and we have more and more at our fingertips and we have more depression, more anxiety, um, more disconnect from our own being than ever before. And it is a simple practice. What we end up looking at affects us and informs us, of course. And every morning when we wake up, often it's the scroll of internal lack, right? If you're looking through, scrolling through, or if you're um, comparative living, that we just constantly run through all the things we aren't, all the things we haven't given, all the things we haven't done. Even in yoga, all the asanas, they haven't... you know, mastered or pranayamas, or I need more chance, or I need more followers or likes. It's just this consumption that will never fill the void, never fill the void. And so what it is to just pause for a moment, notice the things that are working, notice the ways in which you have enough at this moment. Even if your bank account is really low, even if your refrigerator is nearly empty, that in the great context, that you have enough. And really, in our Western world, more than enough, to the point in which we are being smothered by our own consumption. And when we step out, when I step out into nature, when I see the web of life, like, ah, that's enough and when I'm walking and I'm at the mall then of course no it's not enough it's like I don't have those shoes I don't have that thing I don't walk that way I don't got that thing but the practice of enoughness is a practice and it's not a practice that then you tick off your list it's a practice that is ever important and ever evolving that even in a momentary about to complain about there's not enough whipped cream or there's not this thing or I don't have that. It's like, oh, (laughs) what I do have, damn. My heart is pumping. My lungs are opening and closing. My cells are alive and vital. I have people I love. I have people who love me. And maybe it's not in the form that I thought it should be, some expectations, some society thought it should look, but mm, wow, it is enough. And then when I pause on that, it actually feels like more than enough. It feels insanely abundant. And in no 
way is that to say I don't have my moments and I still crave and I still long and I still grasp at. But boy, if this practice isn't to just set me into the grace of what is, uh, then I'm not sure. It's definitely not for getting my leg back behind my head. I've done that a lot and it has not um, created a sense of wholeness and santosha contentment.